0: Good morning. Welcome to the part of our service where we are going to reflect on a passage of Scripture from uh, the Bible. My name is Dan McDonald. We are um, continuing our series through the letter Paul wrote called 2 Corinthians. We uh, welcome you wherever you are in your journey of life and faith. If you are a skeptic here, you are especially welcome. You need to know that this letter is a very in-house letter um, from a Christian leader to a Christian church about how church should actually exhibit the love that Jesus gave them. And so it's a bit of an in-house letter generally. And today, particularly those of you who are investigating the faith, we're going to get to a deep dive inside the depths of the center of what it means for Christians to be a gospel community. And so we enjoy having you. We are glad that you are here. Now for those of us who are Christians, we're going to continue our series looking into, deeply into what it means to be a gospel community based on 2 Corinthians, and here um, to read the passage from chapter 2 is Patience.
1: Today's scripture reading is taken from 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I caused you pain, who was there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you, that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now, if anyone has caused you pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you for such a one this punishment by the majority is enough so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow so I beg you to reaffirm your love for him for this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything anyone whom you forgive I also forgive Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, but we are not ignorant of his designs. This is the word of the
0: Lord. Be Thanks God. be to God. In this letter, called the second letter of Paul to the Corinthians, Paul reveals his emotions very fully. Without a doubt, this is one of the rawest, most visceral, emotional letters in the whole of the New Testament. Paul is a leader who has been deeply wounded by this church in Corinth. His loving loving oversight over them has been misinterpreted. His motives have been twisted by people who simply do not respect him or want to submit to his leadership. They've considered him at different times unsophisticated, A bully, uneducated, weak, untrustworthy. And in his response, here so poignant, so tender, so actually filled with pain, Paul gives us insight into two areas of Christian living that we need to consider very carefully. Firstly, what is the nature of gospel shepherding? And secondly, what is the nature of gospel discipline? What is the nature of gospel shepherding and what is the nature of gospel discipline? Those are the two paragraphs that we are going to look at. And then we're going to finally ask and answer this question, are they worth it? Because they're hard. So, the first few verses were covered by Kingsley Lyon, his excellent sermon last week. So, I would simply supplement what he has said. But here, in talking about the nature of gospel shepherding, he says it boils down to one thing, mutual encouragement. Kingsley called it giving each other joy. But what is very surprising here is how mutual it is. First, let us look at why Paul decided not to take another visit to the Corinthian church, even though he promised them that he would come. He says these things in chapter 1, which we're not looking at. We've already seen it last week. He said, I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrain from coming again to Corinth. Do you hear that? Paul didn't want to discourage them. He knew that his meetings with them were bruising. They were filled with tension, and he didn't want to discourage them further. But here in the first paragraph, look what he says. Verse 2, he says, if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad except the one whom I have pain? Do you hear that? Paul is implying that he doesn't want to face people who might give him pain. In chapter 1, In chapter 1, he said, I want to keep you from being pain. But here, he's saying, I don't want pain. It, It goes even further. Look at the next part of the verse. He says, I wrote as I did, that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. Men and women, Paul is saying, I decided not to come because I didn't think you could handle it. And because I know I couldn't handle it, so I avoided it. Paul canceled a visit to spare himself, another tense, bruising encounter with difficult and divisive people. Paul is saying, I may be an apostle. I may have planted a number of churches. I may have oversight over all the churches in the Gentile world, but I'm not Iron Man. I don't have the suit of Iron Man. I get discouraged too. I get hurt too. I get drained just like you do. If you cut me, do I not bleed? If you malign me, do I not get discouraged? Too many leaders, including Christian leaders, have a false view of leadership, that we need to exude strength all of the time. I know. I have felt that temptation, that I need to not show weakness, that I need to face up to whatever pain may be involved in whatever meeting may be needed. And Paul is saying, No. There's no pedestal here for leaders to climb up upon. Other leaders the Corinthians had admired, other leaders they'd given pedestals to, other leaders they had acted in such a way that these people thought they deserved accolades, but the gospel says we're all the same. We're all weak, we're all sinners. We all need encouragement. No human leader deserves a pedestal, says the gospel. And no human leader deserves the millstone around their neck that a pedestal creates because a pedestal separates you from me and makes you think I don't need encouragement and makes me think I always need to be strong. This is not the gospel. Leaders are not spiritualized CEOs. I remember I had to learn this as a pastor When I practiced law, I'd read secular views of leadership, and they were leader, authority, strong. And then when I went into Christian ministry, the leadership model that was most prevalent came out of a church in Chicago called Willow Creek, and it was the pastor as CEO. Organized, delegating, vision leading, and those aren't wrong. But a pastor is not a CEO. And I had to unlearn this whole way of understanding Christian leadership. And it's still still today, some of those lessons I'm still trying to deconstruct and unlearn. Because leadership in Christian church is a shepherding, servant role, not a CEO role. But Paul is also saying something else as well here, not just about the role of leaders, but the role of those they're shepherding. The role of the congregation is very different from secular models. If you are involved in office work or in company work, you know your role to your leader has some of the the fear of their authority over you to stop promotions or to fire you. None of that is supposed to be here. Those power dynamics that exist are not to be in the church. Here, he says, every Christian leader deserves and needs encouragement. The relationship between a pastor and people, there may be some kind of authority there, but it does not cancel the equality between you and I or the mutuality needed between you and me. I have a former associate pastor. He's now the church planner of our church plant, Kyle Hackman. And I remember having a significant conversation several years into him coming from the United States. He said, Dan, I I don't exactly know how to say this, but his role was to shepherd new people coming in. And he said, so many of the new people coming in are coming off of campuses. And from their campuses, they had staff members in their campus ministries who met with them week after week after week. And they just got used to dumping and unloading all their stuff on these campus staff workers. And so they come and they meet with me and they have this kind of expectation that I and you as their pastors are gonna be able to meet with them regularly so they can just dump their stuff. And I submit to you, when I talk to Christian leaders, Kyle's experience isn't that untypical. It's one way. Another Christian uh, staff member in our church said, this is what I'm finding. They said, when I meet with them, they think I'm a Christian staff member version of their therapist. I'm going to meet with them regularly, and they just unload all their stuff on me. Therapists ask good questions. Therapists create a therapeutic alliance with their clients. They get paid by the hour. They go at the pace of their clients. They confront very rarely because the philosophy of therapeutic counseling is you let the client figure it out and they change when they're ready to change. Men and women, a pastor, a shepherd, a small group leader is not a counselor. We don't have a therapeutic alliance with a client. We have a gospel responsibility as a shepherd to help you and the people around you flourish. When I meet with someone, I have all the spiritual needs of the rest of the church family in mind. When a shepherd meets with you, when your small group leader, when she meets with you, she has the call of the discipleship of Jesus and his teachings on holiness and love in the back of her mind. So the approach is vastly different. We don't wait for you to necessarily figure out when you want to change and go at your pace. I don't know how many times I've met with people who are struggling with addiction to pornography. I don't wait for them to figure it out and process it with them for three months. The Bible says, stop now. So I have to, as a shepherd, say, stop now. Pastors are not CEO. We're not iron men with a suit of iron. We're not therapists that you dump your stuff on. But you know why we do what we do? Because we do have something that we love to receive. It's not your stuff. It's encouragement from you. That's why people go into ministry. That's why small group leaders sign up. Not because they get paid. We don't pay our small group leaders. (laughs) The currency that they crave is the encouragement of seeing God at work in your life. A Christian leader's role calling is as a servant shepherd to encourage you by proclaiming the gospel to you by their life and by their words and by giving you the good news and shepherding the gospel into your heart, making Jesus more beautiful to you than he ever has been before by our life and our teaching, our exhortation, our encouragement. And the role of the congregation is to show that the gospel is going deep, that Jesus is becoming more beautiful to you to testify in word and deed the transforming way that the gospel is weaving its way into your heart. Paul ends his paragraph, this paragraph, with one of the most raw and revealing statements. He says, I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. This then is the enduring call of Christian leaders, even when you're hurt. Even when slandered, as Paul said, we'll discuss that in a few minutes, Paul wrote out of love not to lord it over them. John Calvin said, this is always a settled principle, that pastors have no special lordship over people's consciences. They are ministers and helpers, not lords. Paul understood that, and he shows it here in anguish of heart over their division, In affliction over their spiritual immaturity, in many tears over their slanderous accusations, Paul chose not to be defensive. He chose not to retreat, not to be concerned with self-protection, and not to throw them under the bus. In pain, he didn't completely retreat and ignore the conflict either. He tried another way. He wrote a letter. He thought it would be more constructive because in pain, he waded into the mess of shepherding. Leaders, shepherd. Encourage your people as a loving shepherd. We're called to do the loving thing at each moment, so ask yourself, small group leaders, staff members, ministry leaders, what's the most loving thing I can do right now? Church members, encourage your leaders. They're not iron Man with a suit of iron. It's a two-way street. You're called to serve your leaders not by blind obedience to the things they tell you to do, but by substantive encouragement in showing them how God is at work in your life. Are you making your leaders rejoice in what God is doing? 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 11, therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Hebrews 10 verses 24 and 25, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. The nature of gospel shepherding is mutual encouragement. Secondly, the nature of gospel discipline. It is our second paragraph. I need to say church discipline is in... Pretty steep decline today. Many churches uh, struggle with doing it whatsoever. Um, we have a highly litigious society that's highly suspicious of authority, and so in some parts of North America, church discipline is becoming functionally illegal in some jurisdictions, and church discipline is complicated. I've, I've been part of it. It's hard, but as Paul shows here, it's also beautiful. It is the restoration of mutual love. The nature of gospel discipline is the restoration of mutual love. Paul here is referring to a case of a person who probably slandered him. It's the person he wrote the letter about that we have never found, the letter between this letter and the first one, the letter after the visit. The offense is not known to us. Many people think it's the, the person mentioned in 1 Corinthians who was sleeping with his father's wife, but commentators have wisely said that's probably not it because Paul says in verse 10, I forgive the man. That indicates to us that the man's sin was against Paul, not against his father. But it was big enough that it affected the whole church. So that's the most likely scenario. Paul had been slandered personally. We know from the first letter that Paul had a whole group of people that thought he was unsophisticated, that thought he was not fit to lead them, that disrespected him. This was possibly one of the ringleaders. But in the midst of talking about that, Paul gives us this beautiful picture of church discipline, and let's look at it now. Firstly, the first verse, verse 5, tells us when discipline should actually be done. First verse says, if anyone has caused pain, he's caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. Paul makes the case right here. Discipline is attracted when the sin of one becomes the pain of many. Private pain amongst a couple people usually can be handled privately, but public discipline in a church situation for the gospel's sake is when public pain, when people are generally being affected, the whole church is being infected by something that is what attracts church discipline. Then Paul says, okay, how do we handle? How do we do discipline? He says in the next verse, for such a one, the punishment by the majority is enough. Here's what Paul is alluding to. The majority of the church, probably the whole church, has been told about what's going on. They've been notified. They've been involved. They've been asked to now come in and as one united church, impose remedial measures. discipline and they have that's what discipline looks like it's the whole church coming together in unity to give corrective behavior and let the person realize the seriousness of their sin thirdly Paul then points out the limits of discipline Paul says okay the punishment by the majority is enough so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow here what paul is saying this punishment has created sorrow in him it's created repentance in him this is the limit of discipline when limit when when, when discipline turns or causes repentance and sorrow for their sin in the person being disciplined that's the limit it's accomplished it's objective Let's stop now because we might create excessive sorrow for our sin. There it is. Beautiful. And finally, the overall purpose of discipline. He says, I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. That's the whole point. Men and women, this is beautiful. The goal of discipline is a restored love for each other. The call to church discipline is the call to a restoration of mutual love that, in fact, is deeper than the original love was because discipline has brought people together in a beautiful way. Now, I need to ask you, do you think this was an easy process? No. No. Remember remember what Paul said when he wrote the letter telling them to discipline? He wrote it out of anguish and tears and pain. He wasn't excited about this. He wasn't thirsting for justice. He wasn't being punitive. It was so hard for Paul. But but despite being bruised in love for the person and the church, he said, We need to do this. And despite them having serious reservations about his quality of leadership and his fitness to be an authority over them, they listened and they did it. And this person repented and they can restore mutual love. This is a beautiful moment. Out of a hard, messy process, struggling, they got to this beautiful place. This is the gospel, men and women. This is the beauty of shepherding taken to its highest depths of even discipline. Mutual love being restored. Now, if you're here and you are investigating the Christian faith, I'm, I'm going to ask you, do you know any institution that goes to these lengths, that walks into these messy waters? I don't know any. You will say back to me, I don't know any churches that do this, and I'm saying if, if you're here and you're a skeptic and you say that to me, I, I agree. Most churches won't. This is really hard. And for us who are Christians, we have to admit this takes so much courage, so much patience, so much emotional energy Oh my word, it means being held to account to repent of your own wrong. It means being challenged, being willing to walk into the mess of other people. It's complicated. Oh, it's hard. Is it worth it? That's really the question in your mind and mine because we have to admit something. This kind of messy servant gospel shepherding, this kind of messy gospel even discipline oh, this is hard. There's a reason why as a pastor I don't like to do these things. I'd much prefer the CEO model. It's cleaner. Pastor as CEO gives me lots of authority and gives me relational distance from the people I'm supposed to minister to. It hides me from vulnerability, and I crave that. I I grew up, you know, skinny with thick glasses Back in the day when being skinny with thick glasses was not cool. It's a lot cooler now, but it was not cool when I was growing up. And I was bullied. And I remember sometime in about middle junior high, beginning of senior high, I am going to do whatever it takes not to be vulnerable like that again. So this is so attractive to me. And there's a reason why congregants treat pastors as spiritual chaplains or, or spiritualized amateur versions of therapists. Your life is full. Your mo- modern life is exhausting and it's just easier and more comfortable to make them someone you can just dump your stuff on than to get to know them and find out your pastor doesn't have a suit of iron. They're not iron Man. They're broken people just like you. They get discouraged just like you. They got quirks just like you. I don't have a suit of iron. My wife's not Superwoman. We're just two people broken with feet of clay walking toward the cross and hoping you will come with us on that journey. And you encourage us when we see you walking with us to the cross. Finally, it's easier as Canadians, isn't it, to avoid conflict? Because after all, as Canadians, do we not have a PhD in conflict avoidance? I talked to my friends from Britain, and I talk to my friends from America, and they say the same thing, you are the most passive-aggressive country we have ever heard of. Now, I'm sure there are more passive-aggressive countries, we're probably third best on the list or something, but we have a PhD in this. Avoiding conflict is just so much easier. Let's just go away and murmur about it. That's not the gospel. In these last few verses, Paul tells us why it is worth it. These verses are quite surprising, but he alludes to two reasons why doing the hard thing is the right thing. Firstly, verse 9, he says, This is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you were obedient in everything. Sounds like high authority. Then he says, Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. That's really high delegation. How do you put those two together? I wanted to test whether you would listen to me, and now that you've listened, I completely trust you. Whom you forgive, I forgive. What does that sound like? That sounds like a parent training up an adolescent in how to make good decisions. I want to see if you'll listen to me. But now that you're making, I want to empower you to make those good decisions. You see what Paul's doing? As a loving parent training a son or daughter, there's this subtle interplay that commentator David Garland catches. He is maturing them. He's growing them up. He doesn't want them too dependent upon Him. He is fighting for their maturity, for their ability to grow and handle difficult situations on their own. He doesn't want them too dependent on Him. That's a loving thing to do. And Paul's saying, you've passed the test. This time, that's great keep going. There's a second reason why Paul says it's worth it, not just because it grows us up into the fullness of maturity, but listen to this. Indeed, what I've forgiven, I have forgiven. If I've forgiven anything, it has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, Is Jesus physically present with Paul? No, Jesus is risen from the dead and reigning in heaven. What's he talking about? Well, he keeps going. So that we should not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Paul is elevating Christian discipline into this incredibly cosmic event. I have some friends, they live in Hong Kong now. They used to be congregants here they like to encourage me. They sent me this video of them on a beach. Now, they're typical Hong Kong young professionals. They travel, so I thought this is Bali or some other place, but, but the beach video starts with them and a few of their friends on this beach, and it just looks like a beach, but then suddenly you realize it's on a drone. So, the, the, the drone goes back, and then it starts to go up, and you realize that this beach is not that big. Pretty tiny, actually. It's them and this tiny beach. And as it, as it goes back and up, a thick forest surrounds this tiny little beach that you could obviously only get to by boat. And there's the boat. And then it goes up and it's a large hill or maybe a small mountain. And as it gets higher and higher and farther back and it gets over the mountain there, all of a sudden in the backdrop is Hong Kong. Right there. This isn't Bali. Bali. This is a hidden hideaway beach accessible by Hong Kong people in under an hour. It completely changed my understanding of Hong Kong, this urban jungle. Oh no. It has amazing natural beauty right at your doorstep. This is what Paul's doing. It's like it's like let me zoom you up from this messy conflict and all this pain. Let me raise you above the context and say this church discipline is part of the cosmic battle between God and the devil, between good and evil. If you don't believe in a personal devil, come and talk to me later. I get it. I didn't either in my journey to faith. But Paul says he exists. And Paul says you are participants in that battle when you go and do the work of reconciling people. Jesus did not come, men and women, merely because he had compassion upon us. He had compassion upon us because we were servants ensnared by, deluded by the evil one. And he had compassion on us because we were enslaved to darkness. And he had so much compassion that he intervened into the mess of humanity. He didn't sit there, God as CEO. He came down as a servant shepherd and he lived among us and living among us. He then gave his life for us and died to break the power of the evil one over our lives. He died to pay the debt of your sin so that your sin wouldn't alienate you from God. He died so God could come in to your life Through the Holy Spirit and give you power over the dark parts and truth over the delusionary parts of the devil. Jesus came, says the Apostle John in 1 John 3 8. It says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came not only to pay for your sin, but to destroy the power of the devil to lead you, to delude you, to corrupt you, to divide you. Jesus destroyed the foundation the devil had built, and we're called now to keep destroying it. So every time, you free someone from a deadly addiction to sin. Every time you restore people in deep conflict, every time we create godly repentance and see people trust God more, we win a battle in the spiritual realm that God and His Son are battling the evil one. You take part in the redeeming work of Jesus, of breaking people's bondage to sin and Satan and allowing people access to God the Father. Jesus died for you that you might be forgiven of all your sin. He also died for you that you might be freed from the power of all your sin. Men and women, everything we do is in the presence of Jesus Christ and is part of the profound war between good and evil. Jesus, the one who entered into our mess as a shepherd, calls us to enter into each other's mess as shepherds and stewards and servants. He is worthy. Therefore, gospel ministry in all of its pain and mess is worth it. If you're a skeptic here, I urge you, understand the deep spiritual forces at work in your spiritual journey. This just isn't an intellectual journey. There is a cosmic battle for your soul between God and and the anti-God. Whom you choose to serve will determine your destiny. Choose wisely. Choose Christ. Christian, understand the mutuality of ministry. Be an encourager of those around you, particularly for those who spiritually shepherd you. Shepherds, lay aside any CEO authority role and come as a servant, as Jesus did. And finally, Let us all understand and participate in the beauty of dealing well with sin and conflict. Gospel shepherding is for mutual encouragement. Gospel discipline is for the restoration of mutual love. Jesus Christ, the ultimate shepherd, came to give us both, he is worthy. Let us participate in both, let us pray. Father, I thank you and praise you for your goodness and grace. I pray now that we, your people, would become co-participants in this cosmic battle by being agents of gospel love, agents of mutual encouragement, agents of restored fellowship, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to look. We have some questions here. So I'm going to go here. Uh, as a Grace Gathering leader, how can I restore a bro- broken relationship with a member? Um, if you're a small group leader, please call Joe and, or me, and we will help navigate you through that. The complexities of broken relationships uh, are not always easy, and we, we could use some more context, but we'd love to help. Uh, what's your favorite pick-me-up? Other than coffee, Uh, I don't think that's what they mean. Uh, I think favorite encouragement. Most of the pastors I know, the most encouraging thing is if you send them an email, this is what God's doing in my life, or tell them. Just tell them what God's doing in your life. That is the biggest encouragement. How do we as church members and not leaders apply the model of church discipline? Uh, Pray for your leaders as they do discipline. Try and trust them when they bring matters of church discipline to you. Follow their lead. Usually by the time you get a church discipline issue, well over 100 hours have been given to it uh, by the the elders. And I mean at least 20 or 30 hours per elder. And it's usually a a committee of the elders at least who's doing it. So that would be some ways that you can help. Uh, Finally, uh, thank you for an encouraging sermon. For those who dump on their gospel leaders, what other resources can they seek for guidance and leadership beyond the Bible? So here's a suggestion. Don't use uh, your staff member, spiritual leader, grace gathering leader, or pastor as your dumping zone. Spread your dump out. (laughs) Have a, a seasoned Christian friend that you can do the ranting to. I've got a couple of those. I just rant and they go... You're a ranter, you know, this is how you rant, do that. Then have some, a few others that maybe you can share your vulnerabilities or your fears to as well, but, but, but limit the amount of stuff you're dumping to the this, to this stuff where you, the, the pastor really needs to hear this. Um, but more than that, it's not so much, don't just dump your stuff, because sometimes we are called to take your stuff. That's why we're here. But there's other stuff you have, the cool things that have happened. There was a, the woman who used to come to my wife, she was um, in the same small group, and she said, I have a goddess cool story for your encouragement. Every week she'd have a, I have a goddess cool story. So encouraging. The currency of gospel shepherding is mutual encouragement. Give it to each other. Thank you. We are now going to go to the greatest gospel encouragement I know no, we're not. (laughs) I'm going to prepare for it. We're going to now go to a time of reflection, and I'm going to ask Stephen to do that. Stephen, go ahead. Thank you, Dan. Um,
1: Yeah, thank you for reminding us that uh, gospel ministry is one of mutual encouragement and
0: mutual love and edification. Now, let us respond with this prayer of reflection.